Even long weekends are short, so why spend a second of this one on a drink run? Instead, get drinks delivered right to your door with Drizzly. Drizzly is the easiest way to find the best prices on beer, wine, and spirits, so you can get back to lighting those totally legal fireworks. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Because the long weekend will be over before this ad is. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. What is up, friends of the podcast? Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. I am Tim, the host of the show. We also do other things online, like on Instagram and TikTok and websites. So if you don't know our work, I recommend checking those things out as well. But the podcast, honestly, is one of my favorite formats because I love long-form conversations because in our cultural moment, Context, nuance, gray is so lost. You know, we're so full of rhetoric and dogma. So I love doing this. I'm glad to have Dr. Angela Parker on the episode today. She wrote the book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. Dr. Angela Parker specializes in womanist biblical interpretation, theology and ethics, contemporary uh, hermeneutical strategies, and post-colonial theory. So I brought her on to talk about her book and about different ways of approaching the Bible outside of the white conservative evangelical lens that so many of us have been brought up in. As always, I want to say thank you to everyone who continues to support the work that we do. If you could give this show a rating, a review, if you can share the episode, that helps us so much. I am so grateful for those of you who listen to the show, who out of all the podcasts out there, choose to listen to this one during your day. It means so much. If you want to support the work that we do financially, you can click on the link in our show notes. Everything we do is paywall free. Our bonus episodes, all of our content online, our Zoom groups that we do, no no costs at all because people are desperately trying to find better ways of pushing the Christian tradition forward, and we don't feel right charging for that. So we rely on the generosity of the community to help us move forward. If you're interested in partnering with us, you can click on the link in our show notes. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mad Priest Coffee. Okay, let me be honest, friends, and transparent right off the bat. I freaking love this company. I've actually met Mike before. He's the owner of Mad Priest Coffee. We got lunch when he was in town randomly one day. I love everything they're doing. It's ethically sourced. It's locally owned. It's deliciously tasting. And the branding is freaking great. Friends, you can buy a tote bag that says, I kissed shit coffee goodbye. Come on. We all know what that's riffing off of, and it's freaking brilliant. On top of that, they are currently launching a Get Mad campaign to end and Christian nationalism. Wait, Tim, are you telling me that you have found a local coffee brand that is ethically sourced, that treats their employees right, that is trying to end Christian nationalism, that is socially minded and is hilarious in branding? Yes, friends, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And it gets even better. If you go to getmad.coffee, 
and you buy anything on that webpage, and in the checkout offer code section, you put in TNE20, you will get 20% off your order. Come on, it gets no better than that. I drink this coffee, I love this coffee, I love what they're doing, it's great, great stuff. So again, that's getmad.coffee, anything on that on that webpage, you purchase it, you put in the offer code checkout section thingamahoozy, TNE20, you get 20% off your order. Go check them out. Thanks, guys, for being a sponsor of the episode and of the podcast. It is awesome. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Angela Parker. Well, Dr. Angela Parker, you know, I discovered you on Twitter. Someone retweeted something you said, and I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. I hopped on your Twitter. I'm like, I need to get her on the podcast. So here we are making it happen. Dr. Parker, thank you for making time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Likewise. I, mean, I was going through, uh, um, uh, it looks like you're at, at Mercer University. Is that correct? Yes, that's I correct. Was, mm-hmm. I was going through some of like, you know, people always talk you up whenever you're on the webpage. I'm like, wow, like you talk about a lot of things. Um, the Gospel of Mark, Pauline Epistles in Theology, Womanist Biblical Interpretation, New Testament Text and Context, Theology and Ethics, Contemporary Hermeneutical Strategies, and Post-Colonial Theory. I mean, we could be here <laughs> for hours because I want to pick all of those. But before we get into some of those things, let's start with you. You know, who are you? What What is your story that got you into this field of work that you're in right now? So it's a fascinating story, I think, because since I've lived it, I'm like, oh, my goodness, how did I make it through all of that? <laughs> I was yeah. actually um, a very I was a teenage mother. And so I'm a teenage okay. mother and I get married very young mm. and then subsequently get divorced. Mm. And at the time that I'm getting divorced, I'm also a licensed minister, but then become ordained in the Missionary Baptist Association. Now, this is all before going to college or going in having any kind of secondary education or higher education, not secondary. Secondary is high school, isn't it? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. It was before I went to college. All right. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> Fair. I'm a single parent and I return back to school and I'm I do a, an associates, then I do a bachelor's. And then I'm going for a master's degree. And I decided to do a master's degree in theological studies. So I'm raising teenage children. I go back to school. My daughter graduates high school. My son changes his residency. He lives with his father. And I end up being an empty nester. So I remarry and I go on to do a PhD at I started Union Theological Seminary Mm -hmm. in New York City, Mm -hmm. but then transferred to Chicago Theological Seminary, which is another story in itself, but transferred to Chicago Theological Seminary and get a degree in Bible, culture, and hermeneutics with the focus in the New Testament. So I'm not your traditional student who from 18 years old goes to college and goes through. I actually have a life where I've lived a life and I've ministered in rural North Carolina churches and that ministry background in rural churches helps push me and propel me into the academy in biblical scholarship. And now the interesting thing was when I was ministering in rural North Carolina churches, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was not called to pastor anybody's church. 
that was just never going to happen for me because I just, I, I like people, but I don't like people like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. I knew, but I always knew I had the gifting. God had gifted me with teaching. Mm. And because God had gifted me with teaching, it made sense to go into the academic side of biblical scholarship. So that's how I got into being a seminary professor in the New Testament after ministering for a number of years. You know, that really gives me hope because I'm 33. I have some college under my belt. You know, it was never my thing. I was a musician. I traveled, you know, mm -hmm. just never at, at 21 had the discipline to really get into it. And there are days where I like, you know, I go, man, if only like, I, I pushed through and got my, my bachelor's or my master's in, in something theological, because right. I really enjoy this world, even though I'm not an academic in that way. So I appreciate you sharing that story. Cause I think there are a lot of people out there who might feel like, Oh, I've missed the window, but you're like, hell no. Like you can do it whenever you really need to, you know, and like, just go for exactly. it. So, so mm -hmm. why, why that field of study though? Like, like, I mean, obviously if you're getting your PhD in something, you have to really, I would imagine, enjoy it because it's a lot of work. What, what drew you to studying the new Testament and, 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 and that kind of journey for you? What was it? Yeah. Well, it was always a deep love for the Bible. Mm. I've never stopped having a love for the Bible. Mm. And that's the thing. I, I, I read folks' Twitter accounts and or like comments about my work or my books or whatever. Mm. And they're just like, oh, she's a heretic or she's this or she's that. And I'm just like, right. um, actually, I probably love the Bible more than you do. But right. I don't say that because I try to be nice on Twitter. You know? <laughs> I really have this deep love for the biblical text. And because that love was always there, it just made sense. But I will say the other thing. Yeah, I am a stubborn woman. Mm. I'm stubborn as hell. And my professors often would tell me when I was in my master's program and I would express a desire to go on and get a PhD in Bible. Usually my white male professors would say, oh, you can't do that. And I'm like, what do you mean I can't do that? And they say, well, well, your people don't do well in Bible. And I'd say, oh. I mean, they always whispered it. And so I was like, what people? <laughs> Right. You know, black people. And I'm like, they, they would actually, I had one professor say, you know, you all can't understand the English language. How are you going to learn Greek or Hebrew or German and French? Y'all can't do that. And I was just like, oh my God, really? You're saying this to me? My jaw <laughs> so, is dropped. I, wow. A professor <laughs> in higher learning said that to you? Yes. A professor in higher learning said this to me. And I was like, oh, let me roll up my sleeves and show you. Hold <laughs> so my beer. You know? <laughs> that's the nice way of putting it, right? I have yeah, other that words nice that we can. <laughs> wow. I mean, that I is. I did. Wow. I did. Wow. I, I, man, I mean, I just, what do you even say to that? You know, like your people, well, like it's just, it's so dehumanizing. Yeah. It's very dehumanizing, but I think one, I don't have to say a lot. I just, most times I ignore a lot of people, hmm. but I just continue to do the work that I know God has called me to do. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. That's it. And so really those folks who say those things, I'm like, okay, I know who you are. I see you. And I essentially walk away for forever and a day and then just keep yeah. going on and doing the work. Because so, there has yeah. to be there yeah. has to be spaces for a multitude of different people to 
engage Bible and have a say in how we read and interpret Bible in contemporary situations. That's all there is to it. Thank you. Okay, so a lot of people that, that you're talking to, including me, are people who grew up in steeped in white evangelical fundamentalism. That's kind of what I call it. Okay, I was homeschooled for nine years. I went to a hymns only church, and we got the drums in, et cetera. You know, um, so these are like these are my circles, right? I grew up with John MacArthur, John Piper, Paul Washer, yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the things is a lot of us are I'm going to use the, ter- the term we don't like to use, but deconstructing in some way, shape, or form, right? Trying to rethink some of this stuff is what I'm realizing is one. One of the fatal flaws from that particular perspective is that they think that they're above culture, but they're really coming from a culture, but they can't acknowledge that they're coming from a culture. And so everything else is coming from a culture and therefore is not the gospel, but they're coming at it just from the straight, quote unquote, what the Bible says, right? It's not their words, it's God's words. That, especially with you having your PhD, that's got to drive you just (laughs) crazy being like, how do you not see it? Oh, it's funny because I see it. And because I have the platform to be able to train people who make a conscious decision to come and do an MDiv, come get a master's of divinity. A lot of our conversations stem, well, because as I said, my PhD is in Bible culture and hermeneutics. Mm. So there's no way you can separate culture out of how you read biblical text. So one of my arguments, especially when I'm having conversations with a lot of evangelicals, there are a lot of students come into seminary and they're trying to figure out how do we deconstruct and then reconstruct. And I have to say, all right, part of how you do that is thinking through context of the New Testament. So when I say New Testament text and context, I actually have to start. We don't start with just reading the Bible. We Mm. actually start with thinking about the culture and the background, which brings about Jesus. So you have to look at Judaisms. And when I say Judaisms, you have to realize that there are different ways that folks are practicing Judaism, even when Jesus comes on the scene. Mm. And then you have to look at the Roman imperial context. And then you also have to look at what else is feeding into the Roman imperial context. And this is where I usually get students like, I didn't know that, that You know, Egypt is a part of Africa and Mm. Africa is also an empire in itself that actually has trade with the Roman imperial context. And they have to use Israel as a land bridge for part of the trade. So Mm. you get a different multiplicities of people who are going through going through Israel. And so there's this there's this like large masses of different types of people, different colors, different shades, different hues. And so then I have to say, so your Bible is not a Western text. And so for you to read it from completely Western culture is probably wrong. And so you have to acknowledge that. And that's where, you know, students are like, oh, you mean the Bible's not all white people? I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> right. And, and even though it's funny to say, you, as someone like myself, I didn't really think about that until like maybe a few years ago. We're like, wait, yeah, the people I'm when I'm imagining Paul, he's not a white dude in like yeah. a tunic. You know, <laughs> like that's just not who he is. And, and, and I think that is. One of the most frustrating things that I think I've experienced coming out of these circles and just seeing how people like now myself are being characterized, you know, it's just like, oh, you just succumbed to culture 
and we have right. not. It's like, well, everyone has a culture. I mean, the Bible yeah. has a yeah. culture, and yes. that's not that's not wrong. That that helps us. Mm-hmm. I would argue. I'm sure you would argue too. Understand what's happening and what the message really is, and then as yeah. maybe someone like a Scott McKnight might say, how do we take the Bible mm-hmm. and interpret it for our day and our way? You know, like that's exactly. kind of the the calling of the Christian because. Mm-hmm. You know, electricity wasn't a thing in Bible times, right? So, like, right. we have technologies that we have to make wise decisions with by maybe help having the Bible inform how we should see certain issues, but it's not a black or white moral exactly. handbook. Mm-hmm. And so, I often have to say to students, all right, so my job is not to show you how to take the biblical text and plop it into the, today's context. Yeah. My job is to give you the tools to nuance how you interpret for contemporary context, not to do a one-to-one correspondence, because when you do a one-to-one correspondence, we all get in trouble. You do Mm. a one-to-one correspondence and you say, well, for all time, everywhere, women are not supposed (laughs) to preach or teach. I'm like, see, that's where you get, that's where you get in trouble (laughs) (laughs) because you've made a one-to-one correspondence and you haven't even looked at the various texts that tell us different things for different particular time periods. And I often tell us, tell students, you know, Paul is a situational preacher. Mm. So Paul, when he writes something to the Corinthians, he's writing for that particular situation. He knew them. He knew he could say certain things, but he didn't know the Romans. So he couldn't write and say certain things to the Roman church, because if he, if he went, if he went and tried to check the Roman church, like he tried to check the Corinthian church, they've been like, oh, we ain't listening to you, boo. Go somewhere and sit down. Mm-hmm. So you have to realize that just as Paul is situational, we have to be situational in the ways that we do our preaching and our teaching and have those kinds of conversations. And I would argue that especially the John Pipers and the John MacArthur's of the world are yeah very much ignoring that. And they're making themselves the particular authoritarian ideal for reading biblical texts. And so if you cross a John Piper or a John MacArthur, then you're crossing God in their view. And I'm like, no, you're an interpreter. You're not God. And you're not going to hold that authoritarian nature over me. So that's the big difference. Mm -hmm. I I think you summed it up so well. That's exactly right. Um, So you know, there are two kind of things I'm kind of curious to know more about. Um, the first one is womanist theology. So I'll, I'll put my cards out on the table. I am still very new. I'm still working on even understanding how big the Christian tradition is. Um, and and things like, you know, I've heard of this term before, but I never really dip my toes into it. I would love maybe just your explanation on what is womanist theology? What is it trying to do? And, and your thoughts on it. Sure. Womanist theology. And I want to make the distinction between womanist theology and womanist biblical interpretation. These distinctions will become important in a second. Okay. Womanist theology begins in 1985 uh, with the matriarchs of Dolores Williams, Jacqueline Goldsby Grant, and Katie Geneva Cannon. These three women are doing PhDs at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Hmm. So Union Theological Seminary is the birthplace of womanist theology. Hmm. And two of them are doing PhDs under James Cone. So James Cone being the father of Black liberation theology. So they're they're taking classes with Cone and they're beginning to see holes in Cone's own theology that does not take into account Black women. 
And so womanist theology grows up as this theology that takes seriously the lived experiences of Black women, both in the United States of America and also in the global South of Africa as well. But it's thinking through the interlocking oppressions of race, gender, and class that James Cone wasn't thinking about with regards to Black liberation theology, but also feminist theology was not thinking about because when feminist theology grows up and it's coming up under just thinking about the suffrage movement and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, those folks are thinking about white middle-class women. Mm. And they're trying to make all women essentially white middle-class women, but black women are seeing a difference between oh, you're not really including the idea of race because we're Black women. And white women could easily partner with white men in order to oppress Black women, even though they're still women. So feminist theology was not seeing that distinction. So womanist theology, again, takes seriously the experiences of Black women in order to begin to talk about how do Black women talk about and perceive God. And the distinction that specifically Jacqueline Goldsby Grant made in her book entitled White Women's Christ, Black Women's Jesus, Mm. she talks about how Black women don't necessarily need a high Christology Christ, a high, you know, just upper echelon, upper class Christ that's going to walk through your suburban neighborhood and take you around his shoulder and carry you. No, you need a a Jesus who's going to walk with you through the trails and the trials that you're walking as you're trying to get to Canada. And as that trope of, as you're trying to get to Canada lends itself to black women's experiences as enslaved people. So if I'm walking to Canada and I'm walking for freedom, I'm not walking by myself. I'm going to take mama, daddy, auntie, uncle, brother, sister, cousin with me, but also I need Jesus to walk with me as, as I'm on this, this pilgrim journey. I want Jesus to walk with me. It's an embodied in flesh Jesus of, I would say the gospel of Mark that walks along the way with the people, not that high Christological, oh, let us go to the throne and worship and worship and worship the high class Jesus. It's the idea of a, an embodied Jesus. So how do black women compose and construct theologies about God and about Jesus from that particular experience. Now, going back to how I got into biblical studies, mm, yeah. oftentimes the professors that I talked to would say, you all are better in theology, talking again about Black folks, because it was the idea of in theology, you can say whatever you want to say, or you can construct whatever you want to construct, but the biblical text That's hard science and you have to know how to parse and decipher and go through all the words. Imagine me with a beard. I know you have a beard, but that's okay. (laughs) I'm not offended. You can do it. (laughs) And a plaid jacket with like tweed patches or whatever those patches are. And tattoos and a beanie and glass. Wait, wait a second. (laughs) It was the white male professor trope. (laughs) So Bible... And just getting womanist biblical interpretation into the parlance of academic studies was a difficulty because theological formations were looked at as 
you could almost construct or say anything, but the text is the text. And so you can't construct and say anything about the text. You have to read the text as an objective reader. Well, again, one thing white male scholars don't tell you is that they're not reading objectively. They're reading from their own positionality as white male scholars. And so how is it inappropriate for me to read from my own positionality as a Black woman in the United States of America? So that's what womanist biblical interpretation does. It tries to read biblical texts, or I tried to read biblical texts with the lens of the experiences of Black women in the United States of America. And I name it white male biblical scholarship or male stream scholarship, as someone like Elizabeth Schuessler Fiorenza would call. It's that idea of white men reading Bible, but they're never naming their positionality. Okay, you actually hit on something that I think we should explore for a few minutes because mm-hmm. um, I am I am uh, kind of curious to understand better um, because I okay so you 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 separated theology from biblical studies and you mentioned yes. kind of what I was thinking it was like well doesn't the text say something right like like if I'm reading Genesis one for example right yes. I understand and. Tell me where I'm wrong on this, by the way. I'm just giving you my thoughts. But if I'm reading Genesis 1 and I'm reading the creation story, I understand that I can interpret it as a modern Westerner individualist with a scientific lens and say, oh, uh, this author must be talking about how the earth was physically formed, right? But right. then you hear someone like John Walton who like has spent his whole life in that book and he's like, actually, like we, we, we believe based on what we know about the context and culture that really this is probably what they're aiming towards, right? So, yeah. so his argument seems to be more like, well – while it's not what you think, we can have a good idea of what the author is trying to communicate to us, right? right. So wouldn't that make it – wouldn't there be some level of like um, the ability to have some kind of objective reality of what the texts are trying to say or is or, or is even doing that still having a bias? Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Like, like, like can we decipher what the authors are trying to communicate or is it not really possible? I'm – of the camp that it's not really, it's not 100% possible. Okay. We can get ideas as to what the author is trying to say, and we can get ideas as to what the context within the author is writing, help us to understand what the author is trying to say, but to definitively say, this is what the author is saying. I think that's a problem. And I think it's a problem because you almost make it seem like this is definitively what the author is trying to say. And I'm holding the supreme key of this is what the author is trying to say, even though you don't have the author with you from 2000 years ago. So I think that's the difficulty. And oftentimes biblical scholars are not as humble as they should be myself included. Sometimes, sometimes I can be, I can be snooty as I want to, but (laughs) the thing is, You have to have a little bit of that sense of humility that says, this is what we can best understand. This is what I can best posit. This is what I can best interpret for the context of that day and what the author may be trying to say. Mm. But again, that's for the context of that day. You still have to make the nuance and this is what it means for us today. And how do you make that 2000 year leap? to today as well. So again, I think it all comes with that sense of humility that oftentimes we just don't, oftentimes biblical scholars don't possess, but 
again, there's it's still not a 100% this is the objective idea that the author is trying to give us. Mm. And the reason why I say that, because yeah. when we look at different types of criticisms. And when I say criticisms, I'm thinking specifically historical criticisms. Historical criticism, criticism such as text criticism, which is that that area of you're trying to figure out what's the best text that or what's the best manuscript that we can use or what are the best words according right. to all the different manuscripts that we have. That's right. the other thing. We have so many manuscripts and not all of them match. So right. text critics and then thinking about redaction criticism or source critics. And so especially like a Genesis text, you have different sources that are making into Genesis and thinking Hebrew Bible. So the, the JDEP hypothesis the okay now i'm getting deep in the <laughs> yeah <woods>. the jd <laughs> hypothesis of course yeah i know what that is <laughs> as i'm frantically googling like jd <laughs> hypothesis <laughs> but no keep going i love this keep going it down real quick no you do you i'm ready okay thank you so essentially for hebrew bible a lot of scholars tend to think that there are four different sources for the hebrew biblical text mm. uh j the Yahweh source d the deuteronomic source E, the Elohim source, and P, the priestly source. So again, biblical scholars are reading these different sources Mm. and they're using these different types of historical criticisms in order to figure out what the the proper text and proper interpretation is. And what they found over the years is that even if the same, even if different scholars are using the same type of critical lens, such as source criticism, they still ended up with different interpretations. And they would begin to ask, well, why didn't we all end up with the same interpretation? Well, because you're different people and you're still doing the same thing and trying to use the same kinds of lenses to interpret, but you're still different people. And you have to factor in that human factor of you're another person as opposed to a different person. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Hey ho, my chuckaboos on your afternoonified devices. It's me, Gustavus Swift, founder of Swift Foods and all-around meat guy. So, what's for dinner tonight? Might I suggest a tender and delicious cut of Swift beef skirt steak? Perhaps a juicy Swift pork tenderloin with a marvelous citrus chutney? Either one will take the egg the moment it hits the old sauce box. What am I saying? You're already on the internet, look it up! Swift Foods, inspiring extraordinary meals since 1855. Okay, so I, I I'm gonna repeat what you said just so I I think I understand. You tell me if, if okay. I, I get it for the audience. But essentially, what you're saying is ultimately there are a lot of different sources of where we get our biblical texts, and so yes. people are making their best judgment calls to interpret what they make based on the, on what they have available, making mm-hmm. certain calls, right? But even yes. that shows that not everyone agrees, and so there's yes. wiggle room for how we see these things because. 
I'm, I mean, Peter ends puts it really well. He goes, "Well, it might be nice to think that we have a Bible that is that is just you know God's word, God's lips to our ears. That is just not the Bible that we have. It just isn't exactly. right. It has a history. It has mm-hmm. there's text, there's problems. There's it's not perfect. And whether you want to believe it or not, doesn't matter. It just mm-hmm. is what it is. And right. so because of that, people are making their best educated guesses. And the problem I think that 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 people like myself are discovering more and more is that there are people out there like John." MacArthur, for example, who would say, no, 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 this is absolutely the interpretation of the text. This is God's absolute word. There is no wiggle room. And you come along, along with others and say, well, it's a little more complicated than that, John. Like like there's more nuance there. Am Mm -hmm. Am I summarizing your thoughts correctly? Yes, you are. You're saying that really well. And I would like to highlight that there are those of us who are coming along and saying, and we're still Christian. Yeah. Yes. So that leads me then to this question, right? Is, Mm -hmm. and this is something I personally wrestle with. So I would love your wisdom here is how, like something like, like the resurrection, which I think for me personally is pretty critical, you know, it's like the Christian tradition that I've experienced, the resurrection Mm -hmm. of all things, et cetera. You know, since there is a lot of nuance here and we know not everything is quote unquote camcorder footage, as Tim Mackey from the Battle Project would say, you Mm -hmm. know, how do we decipher like, do we believe a bodily resurrection? Like, I think the text is pretty clear that at least they believed it happened. But like, you know, does that mean that that we take it on and say, yes, this definitely happened? Like, what do we do with those kinds of more essential maybe to the Christian tradition? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question too. And it's funny because I probably don't think enough about the resurrection in that particular, it has to be exactly this. Hmm. See, the only, this is where I get in trouble, especially with students. <laughs> students are like, so, 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 so what's the answer? And I'm right. Like, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Right. What's the answer? Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think when, when I'm thinking about resurrection, though, in seriousness, this for me is the mystery of our faith. Hmm. We were not there. Yeah. So that has to be that faith part of our faith, that the certainty for me is that Jesus entered my heart. The faith part for me is I didn't see everything that happened. So I just have to believe that this is what our early Christian writers believe. So I'm taking that by faith. I don't have to have a creedal statement that says, you know, Jesus did this, 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 and then on the third day rose again from the dead. I can live in the mystery of that being part of the mystery. And I can live in that mystery because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's the mystery. Right. And I'm like, okay, I'll take Paul at his word in that particular instance. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery <laughs> that I'll I will allow to I will allow myself to live in that mystery. I don't think oftentimes, especially in Christian contexts, that we allow ourselves to live in the mystery of this faith that we have in and the faith of Christ Jesus. And that's a whole other phrase that we may have to unpack because (laughs) (laughs) one of the things that as I've been doing the study over the years is we've actually tried to take Jesus, put him in that box. Yeah. And put that box in our back and po- in, in our back pocket. Yeah. And then whenever we want to take that box out and present it to people, here you go. Here's my Jesus. And I think Jesus is so much bigger than that box that we put in our back pockets. So I can live in that mystery. 
I love that answer, not only because that's how I've been seeing it lately, so it's reassuring mm-hmm. for me, but I, I, I think that it, it it's honest, right? Like, people have asked me, like, what do you do about the resurrection? I'm like, listen, I affirm the resurrection. However, I realize that I can't scientifically prove <laughs> that it definitely <laughs> happened, right? And, like, right. at the end of the day, I do have to have some level of trust that something happened to these authors, um, mm-hmm. or at least the stories that were handed down to the authors, that, that yes. was so impactful to them that they said, we have to write this down, right? Yes. Um, and I let's let's keep going, for, if you don't mind, if you're, if you're moving in, in this direction, because I, I, I want to get back to um, some other things, but we're really, I think we're on a really good thought here. Um, I love what you said about, you know, do we take this Jesus out of our back pocket and go here, here's this Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. he's white. He wants you to own more guns and he wants you to pray a prayer. And so that way you don't burn in hell forever. And, you know, just here you go. Right. As I am also trying to understand the Bible better, listening to people such as yourself and others out there who I just really am like, wow, never knew this part about the Bible. I'm realizing that like Jesus that I'm encountering, first off in the four gospels, it's kind of like a different Jesus in every single gospel. Yeah, right? I, with like, I with, actually <laughs> teach four Jesus. <laughs> well, there you go. Right. So you have that, but also like Jesus seems very concerned about the here and now. And, you know, there's a reason why he says, right, I've come to give liberation to the oppressed and good news to the poor or Matthew 25 or even Matthew 7 where he says, you know, only those who do the will of the Father enter the kingdom. And, you know, as I read this, I go... People, people like to critique people like ourselves, probably you as well as, you know, being mm-hmm. social justice warriors, being too right. progressive. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, I'm just reading like Jesus, like plainly, you know I mean? I mean, I might be using context here. Maybe, maybe it could be a problem, but you know, I'm just saying like, he seems pretty concerned about like greed and like, and, 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 and how we treat the poor. And right. it seems like for me, I'm like, friends, I'm not being crazy here. Like even, in, even yeah. in James, true religion is taking yeah. care of the orphan and the widow. So I, I, I love how you said that because as I'm discovering this Jesus I'm I'm encountering even more every day is much bigger than just the here's an altar call moment pray this right. prayer don't ever curse again maybe don't right. drink again and you're good to go but is really concerned about like liberation and and who are the people under the boot of the empire right. and how are mm-hmm. we advocating and also you know, maybe someone like me, who's the epitome of privilege in America, a white male, what are we doing with that privilege that I didn't ask for, but I have, yeah. and how do we give it away, right, and help spread yeah. that to others? That's a very different framework than pray this prayer. Oh, it's a very different framework. <laughs> it's also very challenging. I mean, Dr. Parker, frankly, there are days where I'm like, maybe I'll just get a corporate job and not do this work and like, you know, just just live off the, the fat of the empire and just have a good life because it is challenging to be thinking about these things all the time, frankly. That's just me being honest. No, it's the truth. And it's funny. My husband will say to me, don't you have days where you just teach easy breezy Jesus? And I'm like, easy breezes, easy breezy Jesus is not like easy breezy, beautiful cover girl. I'm sorry. It doesn't work. I wish it did. I really do. Yeah. Because it is tiring. And it's, it's argumentative for people because people take the Jesus that they can put in their back pocket with their gun on their hip very seriously. And so there has to be conversations that, that get people out of that mode or at least jar them a little bit. I am not of the belief that 
everything or every person that I talk to who is the gun culture, Jesus loving freak in that type of way where they would say, you know, Jesus is my Lord and Trump is my president. Uh, Uh, Anything I say is going to absolutely get through. But I do absolutely believe in the idea that someone may hear something I say and it kind of in their brain and then they may hear something else from someone else a year later. And then something else from somebody else a year later. And over time, I do believe in the Holy Spirit that can melt and break away some hearts. That's what I'm praying for. And that's what I'm constantly hoping for as I think about transformation of what it means to be Christian in the United States of America. So can I ask you kind of a personal question? If you don't want to answer it, we can edit it out. So, um, (laughs) and this might bring us into post-colonial theory a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, um, You are a black woman teaching a pretty uh, liberation-based theology in a lot of different ways, and you're rubbing up against the empire. And, Mm -hmm. you know, unlike unlike me, where people like me, you know, give me a pass in a lot of of ways, I I never had a professor tell me, you know, you can't read or speak English. How do you do the work that you do? Because I can only imagine the bullshit that you get. Um, I'm just being honest. Like, (laughs) you know, know. you you really check all the boxes of of what, of, of who Trump aimed his campaign at, frankly, mm-hmm. and riled up an entire base that, that you know, thinks critical race theory is going to like, I don't know, oh, send yeah. kids to hell. How yeah. do you do this work? Like, what keeps you going? <laughs> so I, you know, people like to talk about talk therapy, and I think talk <laughs> therapy is helpful, but I am a... If you piss me off, I'm mm-hmm. going to put on my punching bag and put on my punching gloves and hit my bag. So mm-hmm. what keeps me from hitting people literally is yeah. hitting a punching bag Fair. because I have Fair. to, I have to, I know for the type of person that I am, I have to work out of my body, the yeah. things that come into and try to attack me as a person that I often take into my body. And so I have to do something physical in order to get it off of me. And so like I said, instead of being the person who would, you know, actually I could elbow somebody real quick and they wouldn't even notice and I'd be gone. I don't want to do that. I want to be nice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Something about loving your enemies. I don't know. Someone said that somewhere. Someone you know? said that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing, but also I tap out if I have to, mm. that means I ignore people. And that's what I said before, especially you get into Twitter fights or Facebook fights. And I'm just like, no, I'm not going there. And let me tell you something, the block button, yeah. is a gift from God mm. block. Mm. Cause mm. sometimes I just, especially with people who do not know how to argue. And so usually the, the arguments are, Oh, you're just this because you're, and then it'll be expletive black, blah, blah, blah. And word, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Oh, you don't know how to argue. I'm not even trying to have a conversation with you, mm. but if you actually have a conversation of, well, what do we do about just spiritual readings or Lectio Divina or whatever someone you know says to me about how I read or interpret text, then if I can see that they're coming with really true arguments that I'm like, okay, I can think about that and have a conversation and you can respect my position. And I can really try to respect your position because I have students who are, are more conservative leaning too. 
And so they'll be in classes with me. And usually they're, they're fearful at first because they're like, is she going to knock me down or ding a paper of mine? Because I'm, I, I'm a complementarian. I'm like, mm. Mm, well, no, just do your arguments and make your arguments for your point And we'll have conversations. Mm. And I've been able to live in that, especially in a teaching context, because I don't need students saying that I'm the professor who, if they don't agree with everything that I say that they're going to, you know, fail. That's not what this is about. This is about actually learning and seeing how we can live in our different ways of being Christian without Mm. me having to say, you have to be Christian in this way. Mm. I hope that some of it does rub off. I pray that some of it rubs off and I've had students over the years that it has rubbed off and they're like, Oh, Mm. I was an ass. Mm. Let me stop being an ass. Mm -hmm. You're right. Dr. Parker. I was an ass. Mm. So there, there are those moments and those are the moments that actually keep me going too, Mm. Mm -hmm. because I can see changes with people over the years. Fair. What is post-colonial theory? So post-colonial theory is essentially the ways that formerly colonized nations begin to talk back to their colonizers. So think about the British Ra. British Ra goes into India and colonizes India. And after Britain leaves India, there are Indian scholars who begin to come up even in westernized institutions, and they are writing post-colonial theory that talks about their particular identity that for someone like a, a Homi Baba, Homi Baba, he would say that as an Indian person, I'm sitting in this space of having a Western education while also being an Indian person. So I'm, I'm not quite English, so I'm not quite right. I'm not quite acceptable. But I'm also a little bit removed from my Indian native brothers and sisters. So I'm sitting in this liminal space of not being English enough, but also now not being Indian enough. So how do we understand just concepts and theory as we think about just life in general for a post-colonial theory. Now, how it comes into conversation with biblical texts, you have the same thing happening for a lot of folks in, in the New Testament who are close to Rome, but still Jewish. So they actually can be what some scholars call retainers of Rome, meaning they, they do things for Rome in order to keep the peace in Israel, but they're Israelite brothers and sisters who are not close to Rome look upon them as suspect because they are close to Rome Mm. and not necessarily as Jewish as their brothers and sisters would want them to be. So post-colonial theory gives us this language to have these conversations about what's going on in biblical text and think about what we do with missions in the world as well, because you have to think about missions as another arm of colonizing empires. Empires, French, France, France, Britain, uh, Dutch. So yeah, Dutch. Thinking about all the empires that have gone, especially into Africa. Hmm. And they, they use the Bible to mission, hmm. But they also 
colonize. Mm. So African writers and scholars are thinking about especially the connections between missions and now what happens after France and after England are are out of Africa and they're living in their post-colonial state. So you see that mission work actually has conversations with post-colonial theory as well, because the, the powers have used the Bible as a way to colonize. Mm. And so you have to have that conversation as well. I think that's, uh, I think a lot of people um, who, again, are maybe ex-evangelical or, or just trying to rethink things are, mm-hmm. are kind of looking critically at their own missions experience, you know, um, yes. in America and have gotten a lot of whiffs, uh, whiffs of that, including myself. I mean, I, I've done, you know, overseas missions work before. And mm-hmm. um, I actually remember being in the Dominican, working with someone um, who was there and, you know, I was asking them, so what's it like working with other church groups? And they, some of the stories they had were just like shockingly, you know, oh, they, 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 they'll only eat pizza uh, or they, they have to have a, a revival service every single night. But in, in the Dominican, that's not how it works here, but they insisted on having it, things like that. Um, right. and, and I think a lot of people are like, yeah, like I, I don't think I was exporting just the gospel when I went overseas. I think that there was it, it was maybe like like the westernized American gospel, which also yes. includes really bottom line what white culture, white, you know, white culture and, and, and white and, Jesus, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But but we didn't know that because we thought we were just preaching the gospel. And I think yeah. a lot of us are rethinking that. And that's what post-colonial theory does, because mm. there are scholars I'm thinking about Musa Dubé. She's now the current president of the Society of Biblical Literature, which is the academic guild for all biblical scholars. And she's the first African, well, she's the first woman from the global South to be, she's the first global South woman to be the president. She's the first black woman to be the president. And she writes about consuming the cultural bomb. And in it, she talks Mm. about, in that particular article, she talks about the missions translating the gospel of Matthew for her people. She grew up in Botswana and the language in Botswana is Setswana. And what the missions would do as they were translating the gospel of Matthew for the Setswana language, they would use the word badimo for the word daimonion or the word demon. So demon is equated to badimo in Setswana because Setswana did not have a language for demons. But what the missions did was they used the word for ancestor, for demon. So in the Setswana language, when they're reading their Bible, Jesus is going around casting out the ancestors. Why did they do that? The people of Botswana are an ancestral people. And so you revere and worship your ancestors. But as English folks, well, French, as the French came in and did that, they would say, that's not right. That's backward African ancestral worship. And that has to be, it's demonic. And so they've essentially equated the ancestors as demonic. And that's what culture, that's when you don't think about the culture of a place as you go and do missions. And so you go and you blow up the culture of the place that you're missioning and you mess them up. And that's why she writes about consuming the cultural bomb. 
Because you're not just giving Jesus, you're destroying things in the midst. Right, because you're bringing your own cultural context there exactly. and things that you think are problematic that maybe a different people group does not think are problematic all mm-hmm. of a sudden now become problematic because of your own problems. Exactly. <laughs> right? And so I <laughs> yeah. think you demonstrated that really well with that example. Um, so let me ask you this as we kind of you know start landing, landing, landing the plane a little bit. <laughs> yes. What do you think is... You know, we're obviously swimming in, in these waters in America. This like uh, yeah. this evangelical movement. We we all saw Trump. We saw the insurrection. We've seen Christian nationalism. We've seen the real minimization of Christian nationalism. In fact, I just yesterday watched an hour long um, conversation between Neil Shenvey. I'm not sure if you know who he is, and no, uh, and Alyssa Childers. Uh, there, Alyssa Childers runs a pretty um, fundamentalist type, you know, evangelical podcast, and <sighs> and she brought on Neil Shenvey, who's also kind of one of those types that's seen as more intellectual and they just pretty much the question was is christian nationalism overblown you know and essentially i watched the whole thing i wanted to pull my hair out i was just like (laughs) it's just such a it was it was very frustrating to listen to but their point pretty much was like well if 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 a christian argues for um uh, a certain christian position and they're conservative people call it christian nationalism but if a progressive does that it's not called christian nationalism that's and that's a double standard And i'm like no it's not because christian (laughs) nationalism is a very specific way of viewing the world, the Bible, the faith, and it has a, right. a specific perspective that, that they want to implement that is not the same thing as someone advocating for liberation for the <laughs> oppressed. You know, that's not Christian nationalism. So anyway, that's a tangent, but I we see all this. Yeah. What are some of your thoughts? Like, what do you think the direction of mm-hmm. evangelicalism is, is heading in? Because I, I'm really torn. You know, I think there are some people who want to make it better, but a lot of us are leaving. And it seems like right. fundamentalism is only kind of growing in those spaces and this yeah. like in, entrenchment. So we just love some of your, your input on this. Yeah, it's, it's one of those. I don't think I ever considered myself evangelical until I got into my first position as a seminary professor. My first position was at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. So I'm in Seattle and they call themselves a progressive evangelical institution. And because I was in that institution, now I had this label of evangelical. Mm. I've always called myself Black Baptist Mm. and I I called my upbringing Black Baptist conservative upbringing. Mm. So had some fundamental tendencies but also was connected to liberation as a result of being Black and Baptist, but still being conservative regarding marriage and uh, some elements of complementarianism and some elements regarding LGBTIQ plus friends, which I would completely disavow today. So I I am LGBTIQ plus affirming and not in a complementarian marriage, as you could imagine. And so it's, it's just the nomenclature of evangelical is something that I'm starting to try to reclaim a little bit because I think about Bible as important as an authority in my life. I think about what my example as a particular Christian looks like. I don't walk around and carry Jesus in my back pocket and say, here's Jesus, but I do have conversations with people. And, you know, usually people often ask, well, why are you still Christian or why do you still believe in Jesus? And I'll have those conversations. So I consider that an element of mission and I'll talk about faith. And so 
when you think about what evangelicals are supposed to be, I think I try to embody some of that in conversations with people. But I want to make the distinction between these fundamentalists and conservative evangelicals that actually do damage to the rest of us who are trying to do something differently. And I think we're the, I think we're out there because I would also prop up an organization called Evangelicals for Justice, who um, usually has an annual conference. And they're they're trying to think through things differently. Yeah. So I all that and I forgot the original question. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're fine. I, I really was just asking kind of what you think the future of the evangelical name and movement is. And yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to say briefly that I agree with you. You know, um, there's a great book that I, I reference all the time, uh, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage by Donald Dayton, where he talks mm-hmm. about, you know, how some of the early early Wesleyans were egalitarian, were abolitionists, mm-hmm. you know, were, mm-hmm. were pretty radical as far as yeah. how they engaged culture. And I'm mm-hmm. like, those are my evangelicals. <laughs> like, yeah, let's get back to yeah, that. Let's get back so, to that. <laughs> but I am just concerned about, it just seems like in particular, Christian nationalism, right? I know that it's not maybe growing numerically, but it's growing as far as the ideology. I think I think the entrenchment of just you know, oh, we have to stand here, and also this really unholy alliance between like like Charlie Kirk and like his you know mm-hmm. um, Turning Point faith and what they're doing doing with yeah. mega churches. That's what concerns me about the future of the evangelical movement. Yeah, that makes sense. I think we're still fighting. I think. One womanist principle of mine, and not mine, but of womanist thought and thinking is we love the struggle, meaning if we're still alive and we're still breathing, we're still struggling and we're still fighting. And as long as I have breath in my body, I'll still be a part of that struggle. And being a part of that struggle that says, so I actually have to pay attention to Christian nationalists who try to run for office. I have to pay attention to that. And I have to make sure that the folks that I talk to also pay attention to that because that Christian nationalism is very much in bed with how we do our political systems as well. And I think we have to be savvier and smarter. I, I, one thing that's often frustrating for me is students who don't watch the news or pay attention to current events or what's going on in the world and just kind of have this feeling of, well, if I just be good Christian over here and get my seminary degree and then pastor a church, it'll be okay. No, guess what? You're going to start pastoring and Christian nationalism is probably going to hit you in the face and you weren't ready for it. So part of my job as seminary professor is to have these conversations so that they can at least have a game plan yeah. to to preach and teach something different than the Christian nationalism that's coming up that's probably exploding ideologically in a lot of different churches that we are even unaware of. I mean, yeah. that's that's a big part of the work that we do, trying to just track it and find it. And like, it, it's mm. true. I mean, there, there, there's a network called Patriot Church. There's like three or four churches yeah. that are called Patriot Church. Okay. And I, I saw that. No, it's, I, it's wild. I have students. Um, I have them do a, an assignment entitled Sermon Exposition and Reflection, where they listen to a sermon. And then we just begin to talk about, did you hear context in the sermon? And how did the pastor or preacher use context and bring in the context in order to begin to nuance for contemporary conversations today. And one of my students listened to a sermon by a Patriot church that essentially called Epaphroditus in Philippians, I believe chapter one or chapter four, a Patriot and how he was a Patriot for Paul. And I was like, 
where's Patriot anywhere in the text? <laughs> and she was like, Dr. Parker, no, that was the whole sermon. And yeah. he was saying that we all have to be patriots for, for America. Right. And I was just like, oh, right. America's not in Philippians. Right. No, I mean, <laughs> right. and, and that, that's what concerns me. Another good example is Jack Hibbs from Calvary Church. You know, he runs a mega church and he oh. has a video from last year of him talking about slavery and George Washington, where he says that George Washington treated his slaves well and that, you know, if, if, if people freed their slaves back then, it was a death sentence. So, you know, they had families and, and I'm just, I'm, I I can, I, I did a TikTok on it. You, you can see it on my TikTok. It's deep, deep down there. But like you see that and you're like, this guy runs a mega church. He's working with Charlie Kirk. Like he thinks that, you know, the constitution yeah. is borderline divine and it, it, it mainly his interpretation of it. And it's right. like, this is the, this is what, this to me is what goes largely unchecked in these spaces. Like, like James White is too busy, yeah. busy talking about vaccine mandates than talking about the rise of Christian nationalism because ultimately wow. he agrees with it. So that stuff, yeah. I think that's, that's the dark cloud that I see only growing that, that, that the longer it goes unchecked, I just don't know if we're right. that far off from another insurrection. You know, honestly, I mean, yeah, we I saw the fruit on the six, mm -hmm. we saw mm -hmm. the prayer to Jesus in the Capitol building. And then yeah. we saw the largely silent, um, you know, voices from evangelicalism who would decry the violence, but not, right. not the, not the nationalism that under, undergirded it, the, the patriotism of God right. and country that really fueled all of that. Yeah, you're right. I, I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. We've anyway. got work to do. That's <laughs> just, the point. Now I'm just venting, you know, now, now it's a therapy session. Um, Dr. Farker, I appreciate you making time. We covered, we definitely dipped our toes into, into a lot of different things, which I love because I, I love keeping conversations a little all over the place. Sometimes it's good to have that. So I, I appreciate you making time. Where can people find you? Like, do you have any, have you written any books? Are you on social yes. media? Um, you know? yeah. Okay. So I'm on Twitter. So you can find me at amp22fab at gmail.com. Yeah, no, AMP22Fab. That's my Twitter. Okay. But you can also pick up my book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Mm. Black Lives Matter and Bil Biblical Authority through Erdman's. You can also find it through Amazon as well. Sorry, the capitalist giant Amazon. <laughs> is, it, is it on audiobook as well? Yes, it is on audiobook and it is also on Kindle through oh, Amazon. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. And let's see, you can also find me via Facebook at Angela Parker and continue to stay in contact through the website at Mercer University, Angela and Parker. Is that where, where, where Dr. Gushy is as well? Is he at Mercer? Yes, he's at Mercer University undergrad. Mm -hmm. Oh, very cool. I like him yes. a lot. He's a, <laughs> I he's love a, him. He's a good friend of the show. We've had him on several times. So yes. Um, anyway, well, great. Um, you know, keep in touch. I'm sure we'll do something again uh, at some point when something crazy happens. I'm like, Dr. Parker. <laughs> we got to talk about this. So, you know, uh, keep in touch and uh, yeah, thanks again for making time. We'll do it again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and a blast. <laughs>